Good, good morning. Uh, that's fine. Everybody hear me? Are we on? We're on, good. Okay. Uh, last month, uh, we addressed some of the biblical and practical aspects of peacemaking. Uh, and this is a vital subject for all of life. It can certainly be said that conflict is as inevitable as death and taxes in life. And if we cannot learn how to deal with conflict in a way that honors God, well, we're pretty much condemned to live our lives in sorrow and bitterness, or maybe as outcasts, or perhaps both. Uh, And so today... Uh, we're going to continue talking about peacemaking in kind of a mopping up operation. Uh, after a battle or maybe at the end of a war, uh, fresh troops come in uh, to relieve those who fought the battle for the important task of taking care of and maintaining the peace. Uh, there may be pockets of resistance from enemy troops who don't know that they lost, there might be looting, and a host of other problems that can arise when there isn't any civil law. Uh, And today, we want to mop up a number of topics that may seem unconnected, but are as much uh, as, as, but still are important to the subject of peacemaking and vital to our lives. Um, The verse that we started last month was, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Some versions, including the King James, uses the phrase, children of God. And that phrase is uh, one that is used to convey God's affection, as in what happens to us after the new birth. And in uh, John 1.12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe on his name. However, that is not the term used in Matthew 5.9. The Greek word in the original text is the word for sons. Uh, And it is used without an article, like an A or a the, to convey a concept of character, of standing. Um, Therefore, the peacemaker has the character the rights, the privileges of a son of God. So, got to ask the question, might as well while we're here, is the Bible sexist? Uh, now, this may be politically incorrect today, but in those days, being a son was a pretty big deal, and I would suggest maybe still is to God. How so? Well, sons perpetuate the heritage of a family, And hence, the title holds a special place in the family of God, particularly as it relates to the high calling of peacemaking. Our family tradition, and frankly a practical necessity, is to gather quarterly to celebrate uh, with those who were born within a three-month period. Uh, And we did it just last Friday, and uh, i got to admit, it was a joy to watch this 30 or so of us Uh, eating ice cream and throwing water balloons at each other. Uh, Our biological children, on the other hand, 
will gather with their in-law families for equally enjoyable, albeit smaller and certainly more sane activities. Uh, The point is that we share with an extended family the love that is common to the body and the family of God. Nevertheless, distinct families play an important role. At present, I have six children-in-law, you might say, and I love them all as my own children. But when I handed my teeny-weeny-queenie Esther at the altar over to Reagan, uh, she left and cleft to Reagan and essentially became a Harrington. And so the Vincent daughters demonstrate their loving submission to their husbands by taking their names, and they play an obviously essential role in passing on the distinct heritage of the families of their husbands. The Vincent sons, on the other hand, will pass on their names and certain distinct heritage to any children God brings to them. And this is the convention of our culture, and I would suggest, of the Bible. Now, lest I be labeled as a complete male chauvinist, I frankly see nothing that limits the title sons of God to males. Uh, Frankly, females often are much better at it than us. But nonetheless, sons of God is there for a reason. Now, in Matthew 5, 9, Jesus doesn't tell us how to become a son of God. He simply said that sons of God are, in fact, peacemakers. People who are peacemakers will be recognized as sons of God at the judgment, and they will be called that when they are welcomed into the Father's house. To see how we are to become the sons of God, we can look, for example, at Galatians 3.26. For in Christ we are all sons of God through faith. In other words... We become sons of God by trusting in Christ for our forgiveness and our hope. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 9 is that people who have become sons of God have the character of their heavenly father. Now, there are several references in Scripture to the heavenly father as a God of peace. And Luke 19 tells us that there is peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But most importantly of all, We know that God is a peacemaker. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He made peace by the blood of the cross. And in other words, even though by nature we are moral criminals against God because we've committed high treason, and are worthy of death by hanging each and every one of us. Nevertheless, God placed the neck of his own son in the noose and pardoned anyone who will lay down their weapons of stubborn independence and come to him admitting, I now know I cannot earn my salvation. God is a peace-loving God and a peace-making God. The whole history of redemption Climaxing in the death and resurrection of Christ is God's strategy for bringing about a just and lasting peace. Therefore, God's sons are that way as well. 
They have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. You can know his sons by whether they're willing to make sacrifices the way that God did. By the sovereign work of God's grace, we criminals are born again and brought from rebellion to faith, made sons of God. We're given a new nature after the image of our Heavenly Father. 1 John 3, 9 tells us, No one born of God makes a practice of sin. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If God is a peacemaker, then his children who have his nature will be peacemakers as well. Put it another way, as Paul does in Galatians 4, 6. Since we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his father into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then in Romans 8, 14, he says, All who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. And being led by the spirit always involves bearing the fruit of the spirit, one of which is peace. So you see why the sons of God must be peacemakers. It's by the Spirit of God that we're made sons of God, and the Spirit of God is the Spirit of peace. If we're not peacemakers, we don't have the Spirit of Christ in us. We don't earn or merit the privilege to be called sons of God. Instead, we owe our new birth to the sovereign grace of God. We owe our faith to the impulses of that new birth, We receive the Holy Spirit by the exercise of that faith. The fruit of the Spirit is peace, and those who bear the fruit of peace are the the sons of God. Our whole salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. Therein lies our hope and joy of freedom. But God calls each believer to be a peacemaker. Therein lies our earnestness and the seriousness with which we must address Uh, this verse. The promise of sonship in this beatitude, Matthew 5, 9, points us to passage later in that same chapter, verses 43 through 45. And both of these texts describe how we can show that we're sons of God. Uh, Starting in verse 43, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, Jesus, say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In Matthew 5, 9, we must be peacemakers to be called sons of God. In verse 45, we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us to be sons of God. And so, it appears to me anyway, that the character of God's sons involves all the acts of love by which we try to overcome conflict between people, ourselves and others. So what steps do we take? Good practical question. Well, let's look again at at the passage. The first thing he mentions in, in Matthew 5 in verse 44 is prayer. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray what? Well, we've got an example in the very next chapter, Matthew 6, 
where Jesus essentially says, pray like this. Pray that you and your enemy will hollow God's name. Pray that God's kingdom will be acknowledged in your life and in your enemy's life. Pray that you and he would do God's will the way the angels do it in heaven. In other words, pray for conversion and sanctification. Pray for yours and pray for his, that there might be peace. Then in Matthew 5, 47, Jesus gives us another specific example of peacemaking love. When he says, if you salute or greet only your brother, what do you more than others? In other words, if you've got a conflict with somebody and you pass by that person with whom you're upset and you simply give them a cool hello or worse, you cross to the other side of the street or hallway and avoid even making eye contact with them. Are you not nursing a grudge? Uh, Don't feed the animosity by ignoring or avoiding the person. That's the natural thing to do. It's also the immature thing to do. And it's not the demonstration of the spirit of a peacemaking God who sacrificed his son to reconcile us to himself and to each other. If he could do that, can we not do something more? Peacemaking tries to build bridges to those enemies. It does not want the animosity to remain. It seeks reconciliation. It wants harmony. And so it tries to show what may be the only courtesy your enemy will tolerate, namely a greeting. The peacemaker tries to look the the adversary right in the eye and says, Good morning, John. And he says it with a longing for peace in his heart, not a phony gloss of politeness to cover up anger and resentment. So we pray, we take whatever steps we can to make peace with maybe something as simple as a greeting to start things off. But even after that, we do not always succeed. A peacemaker longs for peace, works for peace, sacrifices for peace, but the attainment of peace may not come. Romans 12:18 is real important here, where it says, Paul says, "If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all." That's the goal of a peacemaker. If possible, to the extent you're able, don't allow the rupture in the relationship to be on your account, on your side. Don't allow it to be your fault. Do everything you can to establish peace. Now, moving on, some conflicts just don't seem to be clear in terms of who's at fault, who's the offender and the offendee. And when things get muddled, it's sometimes difficult to figure out what to do, even when maybe the less guilty party confesses they're wrong. Uh, It may be that there's a blind spot or spots or a a root problem that hasn't been dealt with on one side or the other. It may simply be because of immaturity, lack of spiritual development or inexperience. Within the home, because of the day-to-day busyness, it's hard to remember who did this, who said that, who's got an attitude, 
sometimes I can't even remember who resides in my home. Uh, but parent-child conflicts are sometimes confusing in this way. The parent may think that the instructions are clear, but the child appears brain dead as to follow through. Uh, There really is no one formula for resolving all such conflicts because the variables, you know, previous history and training, uh, parenting style, personality of the child, sensitivities, surrounding factors, they're all so diverse. But let me give you a couple examples out of many here at Lion and Lamb of uh, parents who have been successful, at least in terms of results, using somewhat differing approaches. I know that there must be more to it, but it seems to me that uh, Stan and Teresa Langhofer seem to have won over their children based upon sheer encouragement and positive reinforcement. They just seem to have fun together. And that's great work if you can get it. Uh, Mike and Kathy Halpin have set a high bar. They've they've demonstrated a strong godly character for their daughters to live out their faith. It doesn't hurt, and I'm sure it's not by accident, that they seem to have had very compliant children. Uh, Now, I, as a father, have had neither of those experiences. Try as I may, I'm not an extremely nice guy, and my children have not been exceptionally moldable. Seems like we've had to administer a fair amount of instruction and correction, and clearly none of our kids are perfect, But to one degree or another, you know, they've all become a bit obstinate during the teen years, sometimes earlier, sometimes later. Uh, And perhaps this is all my failure. I have to admit that one thing I've learned in my old age is that the world is round. And when I think back about how I acted as a teen, it seems to me I'm simply getting what I gave, or a part of what I gave my parents during that transitional period of life. Tends to work that way, kids. However, at least up to now, God has been gracious, and at some point, our children have all, they eventually get it. In other words, the light goes on and relationships stabilize. We don't deserve it, but Christy and I are blessed with a great relationship with our adult children and their families. Remember, the proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, whether you have a fun or a serious personality, whether your children are compliant or stubborn, the best advice in a thumbnail that I can give for peacemaking in the home is, one, be as consistent as possible. Lead by example. Discipline and restrict when necessary, even when it makes them mad. But don't get too bent out of shape when your young people do really stupid things. Remember, you probably did as much or worse at that age. And try as best you can not to lose it too often. Now, there are times when it's, you've got to be firm. 
There are times when maybe you get a little bit upset, but you tend to lose your effectiveness if that's too often. I say these things not because I've always followed my advice. I'm still learning, and I encourage all of you to learn and let your children learn from your mistakes as well as their own. Uh, One of the most important facets of peacemaking within the home is humility. Parents, admit when you're wrong. Ask your kids for forgiveness and do your best to follow up and correct that behavior, especially if you want them to admit their mistakes and change theirs. Moving on here. In Ephesians 4, Paul exhorts us to tell the truth in love. And then in verse 25, he admonishes, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Clearly, truth is something not just the Bible, but all of mankind sees as vital in life. And that raises another tough question. Is it your fault when the stand that you take for truth is the cause of division? If you've alienated someone and brought down their anger upon your head because you have done or said what's right, is it possible that you're not being a peacemaker? Well, sure. If you don't speak the truth in love, you can expect to have more conflict. But not necessarily. Uh, Remember what Paul said. If it's possible, as as much as it lies within you, live at peace. And therefore, he's admitting that there will be times when we will stand for the truth in love and it will still be impossible to maintain peace. For example, Paul says to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 11, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I partly believe it, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, he would not have said that if the genuine Christians should have compromised the truth in order to prevent divisions at all costs. It was precisely because some in the Corinthian church were genuine, in other words, they spoke the truth, that these, or some of these divisions existed. And when you look at what Jesus said, wow, what do you do with that? Luke 12, he said, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. And he makes it clear, in a very real sense, he would not bring peace, but separation, because the truth will divide. We see this more and more as our government and our culture become less tolerant of the name of Christ. Then in Matthew 10, uh, starting in verse 34, he says, Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, And a man's foes will be those of his own household. So obviously Jesus is anti-family, right? Well, let's take everything in context. Jesus is simply saying here, you must love peace and work for peace. You must pray for your enemies. Do good to them. 
Greet them. Long for the barriers between you and them to be overcome. But you must never abandon your allegiance to me and my word, no matter how much animosity it brings down upon your head. You're not guilty. You're not in the wrong. If, you, if in your life of obedience, your message of truth in love elicits hostility from some, albeit affirmation from others. The, the placement order of these Beatitudes is important here. This one about peacemaking follows the uh, Beatitude about being pure in heart. And James has a comment on this in James 3 where he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. First purity, then peaceable, not the other way around. And it's, that's the order of the Beatitudes in verses 8 and 9. Blessed are the pure in heart, then blessed are the peacemakers. Because purity takes precedence over peace. Purity is the basis for biblical peace. Purity may not be compromised in order to make peace. Now, while this beatitude follows the exhortation to be pure in heart, it precedes the statement about the the blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, righteousness must not be compromised in order to make peace with our persecutors. And Lord willing, we'll have more on that next month. Our last main topic here deals with God versus man. Some commentators on Matthew 5.9 state emphatically that this verse only refers to making peace between people. Uh, And their point is that what do we, what role do we play in making peace between God and man? That's all his work. And I get it. I understand that it's only the work of Christ on the cross that pays the price for sin. Uh, I understand that we should take no credit for saving someone. However, I cannot therefore conclude that serving as a tool in making peace between God and men is not an intentional goal of a peacemaker. In fact, it may very well be the primary application of this verse. Uh, Back on Father's Day... Mike taught out of 2 Corinthians 5. And uh, th- these were the primary verses. All these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In reality, No peace is possible without a right relationship with God. And when mature believers 
help the lost to understand and accept Christ's reconciliation and help weaker brothers to walk in the light of God's ways. The most vital and lasting peacemaking takes place. In Colossians 1, Paul says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, those who reach out to share the love of Christ with people wandering aimlessly through life or whose lives are continuing conflict, these folks are peacemakers in the highest sense. Now, whether that's in foreign lands, like Bob Schneider and Larry and Sue and Anna Cowell, uh, and many of you who have been to Haiti, or many, many of you who have brought peace to your co-workers, to your neighbors, and to your friends. This peace is bought with a sacrifice of the spotless lamb, the one who knew no sin, but who loved us enough to suffer and die as payment for our sins. Well, to wrap this all up, I know that in a, in a large meeting like this, there are distractions. It might be because there's, you've got a fussy child. Uh, it might be because you're wondering, what am I going to do for lunch? Well, relax, stick around and stay here and eat with us. It might be because you've got a big meeting coming up this week. But right now, right now, I would ask you, please, bow your heads, close your eyes, and try to focus on the spirit that is conveyed in the following passage and how it might apply to your life. I'm going to read out of Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. 
whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Lord God, let this be our heart, the heart of your Son, the heart of a peacemaker. Amen.